Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Goddess Teens Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the 24th Sunday after Trinity. It comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. All right, so context. Uh, So this is just after the healing of the paralytic in Nazareth in Matthew's gospel, almost just after it, and then the calling of Matthew to the apostleship. So it's early in the ministry, but the Pharisees are already complaining about Jesus eating with sinners. And then immediately, uh, while he was speaking, what he was speaking was in response to John's disciples asking him about why they're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus and his disciples are just living it up, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus answers with the whole thing about, you know, the friends of the bridegroom and putting uh, new wine into old wineskins and bursting it and so forth. So that's what he's talking about. Um, his presence in the world is a joyful reality. And then I think this really kind of illustrates that reality that he's present in the world for the sake of salvation and life, and he's undoing death, and it's not a time to fast. So that's the context. Fair? Yeah. Is there any connection to uh, what comes later, just after John sends his disciples to Jesus, and he talks about, you know, wisdom being justified by our deeds? John the Baptist came fasting, and you said this about him, and I came eating and drinking, and you called me a a drunkard and a sinner, you know, one who eats with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Is there any connection to to this? I mean, tangentially, but I I mean, this is the spirit of the question is different here. John's disciples are trying to figure out I mean, John is encouraging his disciples to follow Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So they're trying to figure out why Jesus behaves differently. I don't think they're complaining against Jesus or accusing him of anything. They're asking, I think, sincerely, Mm -hmm. why is it that, you know, we're fasting and you're not, and there's a different character to your ministry than there is to John's. He's told us to follow you. We want to do what he says, 
but we want to understand. Yeah. That, that's how I, whereas later, right. That, that thing about no matter what I do, you complain about it. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's no way to satisfy you. That's a different, that's a, um, an exposure of their insincerity in their critiques because they just want to critique him. They don't care really. They're just uh, looking for an excuse. Yeah. That, that interchange when he says, you know, I played a dirge for you and you did not mourn and I played the lute for you and you did not dance that kind of, they're always, they're always looking for something that's wrong instead of, right. Instead yeah. of a way to praise. Exactly. Okay. okay. So in this text, then we have two miracles and one interrupts the other. Is there any uh, theological import or uh, application, I suppose, that we can draw from that? Well, I, yeah. And so it's the same way in both um, Luke and Mark that the there's a lot more details in both Mark and Luke. Matthew's the short version. So we know that this is a ruler of the synagogue, for example, and his name's Jairus. Um, and we know more stuff about the woman and the like too. There, there's definitely a connection. Or I think, you know, the way this is laid out is that we should understand the flow of blood miracle as interpreting the resurrection from the dead. So, I mean, the, the, the real miracle we're talking about is the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of the daughter. And in the middle, we get this illustrative miracle of cleansing from presumably menstrual blood that's hemorrhaging. I don't know how to say that word. Hemorrhaging? Hemorrhaging. Hem <laughs> that one. Yeah. <laughs> Bleeding. So uh, uh, the, uh, th there's, a, there's a lot Just of sound it out, Dave. Here. Just sound it out. Yeah. One syllable. <laughs> I know. So I was... So, uh, you Dude, know, my mother, move my mother was a hillbilly. Yeah. You, my mother was a hillbilly. So I can't talk still. Do you, okay. There are some words, there are some words that I just will not incorporate into anything that I have to say out loud. Cause I know that I can't say them or I get my, I get tongue twisted with them. Are you the same way that you just, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not even going to put that in this manuscript or that manuscript. Cause I know that I can't, I'm not going to be able to say it. Unfortunately, some of them are unavoidable for me. <laughs> I just got like, I can't say, I have a hard time saying the word wolf, W-O-L-F. I want to say woof. <laughs> but anyway, I just got busted by McCall. This is uh, expose our, I'll blame it on Peter Eckert, the copy editor. I've been using the word conflagration for years when I meant conflation. And it actually showed up in a, and I didn't know it. I mean, I just would say it and I, so... Anyway, we're always, it's, and it showed up in the last print edition of God of States that McCall sends me an email. Hey, I think you meant conflation. And I'm like, well, now that you say that, I, I believe you, I did mean that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we'll say like, instead of climactic, we'll say climatic or it just comes out wrong. And people, lots of that. people, people will you know, rib me for it here at church. And I'm like, Hey, I I'm way more understanding of public figures who have gaffes because when you talk for a living, it's very easy, very easy to accidentally mispronounce a word here or there. Right. Or use the wrong word completely. Yeah. Anyway, she's bleeding. It's bad. <laughs> she, because of the cleaning bleeding, she's unclean. 
And of course, the dead girl is also the, the corpses are unclean. So there's a connection there. There's definitely a connection with touching, which I think also goes back to uh, chapter eight with uh, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, because Jesus touched her and then, or took her by the hand or something, and then the fever left her. Here you got the this Jairus asks Jesus to come and uh, lay hands on her. And it, does he say that she's dead? In our, yeah, it says that in, in Matthew, it says that she's died and he's asking for a resurrection. In the mm-hmm. other two, it says she's on the cusp of death and he needs to come right away. Mm-hmm. But in any case, then they end the same way. So the, the touching, right? Jesus, and then Jesus, so he's, the, Jairus says, come lay hands on my daughter and she will, she will be saved or uh, she will live, sorry. And then this woman says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment... I will be saved. Uh, and of course, our translations, like they always do, translates it healed or well or something. And then when Jesus does get to the daughter and she is dead, then he goes in and he he touches her, right? And um, Or takes her by the hand. What's it? I think it uses the word hand again, doesn't it? Um, uh, maybe I made that up. I thought it said... It's a, he took her by the hand, yeah, verse 25. Yeah, yeah. There we go. So, so uh, that's nice because I mean, he obviously takes her by the hand by his hand, and uh, you know he doesn't like put his forehead on her hand. So he takes her hand and you know speaks to her, speaks to her, and she arises. Does it say? Wait a minute. Does he doesn't say that he spoke in this account? He does speak in the other ones. So, so anyway, the hand, the touching thing, we we've got that going on. How is it then that the middle one is the sort of interpretive one? I, w- I would say that he wants to illustrate that this resurrection from the dead is not just a temporary relief of physical death, but it is in fact, right. He's raising this daughter for life everlasting, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't just like, you know, some doctor, you know, this isn't like a near death experience where, you know, she, she's dead for three minutes and she sees the light at the end of a tunnel. She wakes up and goes, that was weird and tells us some stuff. And then 30 years later dies and goes to hell. Uh, I mean, this is actually a conversion to faith and a cleansing of her. And Jesus is, you know, he's the new wine and she's a new wineskin by his grace and cleansed and prepared to receive him mm. in this new life. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. Do you think that most of us hear, you know, all the miracles and think, you know, why why doesn't this happen now? Because we think of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting salvation as less than what they received. Yeah, I think that's exactly the problem. Yeah, I mean, I I know that's my problem. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very focused on the flesh and the physicality of this life and the pains and the pleasures of this life. And when I hear, you know, not that these things aren't literal because they right, this happened in history, but I get so focused on the sort of historical reality of the scriptures that I sort of am prone to forgetting that there's theological import and that this was given to us by Christ to make us wise unto salvation not simply to improve our bodily lives here in time. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I, yes, this happened to her in a very physical, real way, in a very specific historical context. She was actually dead, not breathing. Her soul was separated from her body. 
Um, where it was, I don't know. But Jesus actually raises her, which means her body and soul come back together again, and she mm-hmm. lives again on this earth in her body, presumably to die again, um, yeah. and, but not to die spiritually. So, so this raises a question for me, which is, how do we not end up treating the Bible as like just spiritualizing all of the historical events? Because even though you know, St. Paul says they happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction. And so they're meant to instruct us and and instruct us unto salvation. But how do we not fall into that pit of just like disregarding the historicity and just kind of spiritualizing it all so that so they don't so that it doesn't seem real anymore? Does that make right. sense? Yeah, I I think that the way that we do it is that we be very deliberate and conscious of when we're actually allegorizing or spiritualizing rather than doing it sloppily. Okay. Because what happens I think mostly is we're doing it sloppily. You know, um and there was uh, I I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I brought up the the Concordia journal from this past summer on um David Maxwell's article on Cyril and then Joel Alusky's article on something similar where they, where they talked about this. And the example Maxwell used was the uh, calming of the storm. And he's like, look, the preachers get a hold of this and they all apply this by saying, you know, that Jesus is with us through the storms of our lives or something. Mm-hmm. And I, he's right, right? I mean, the one I've always used is say, in a similar way, it's kind of impossible to preach on the 10 lepers and not talk about the leprosy of sin. Correct. So, both of those are totally allegorical um, interpretations, ways of applying the text. And I think they're both completely appropriate. But sometimes we've done it without realizing what we're doing. So we're actually allegorizing without without kind of conscious effort or precision. And mm-hmm. I think we should allegorize. I think that the Bible actually has theological meaning and spiritual meaning. And we're meant to discern this and to seek it. Uh but it's always comes and only comes through historical reality, mm-hmm. which, you know, by the way, Origen and um, Jerome and Augustine would agree with, which and Cyril, which is part of Maxwell and Olusky's points. But so I, I, it's, I think we have to, there is a kind of primacy for the historical reality of it, that it happened yeah. on earth in time, in, in physical space. Um, with real people. At the same time, you know, that it, it isn't just historical facts. I always use the example of, you know, this isn't just, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas Eve. You know, that's historically significant, but, you know, there's no spiritual meaning to it. But what Jesus does is more because he's actually revealing the heart of the Father to okay. us. So is this when you're preaching and you're making an argument? Are you making the argument from the lesser to the greater? Surely, if he's going to do these things, kind of like the Romans eight, if he has, you know, given you his own son, how will he not add to you all these other things? That's the greater to the lesser. But in this case, if he's doing this for their salvation, and that he's just doing this, surely he's going to do all the other things. Is that? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, the, think, the way yeah, in which yeah. you build upon that. Alleg- you know, allegorizing it to to say, 
this is still rooted in kind of a logical progression. Right. And it's not, so, I mean, I think that the people that are really worried about allegory, you know, the only thing they can say about these miracles is they're demonstrations of God's power. And that's just ridiculous to me. In fact, I think it's, uh, it's irreverent. Um, it isn't simply uh, a demonstration of Jesus' power. He has authority over death. To be sure, it, it, it does demonstrate that, and he does have power over death. But he's actually moving in history with actual compassion for this particular father and his daughter. Mm-hmm. He's moved by the circumstances, and this is the mercy that endures forever. And what he's doing is completely in concert with his character and the plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't simply about power. It's it, it's actually he's undoing death right in front of them. His presence in the world as a man on his way to the cross to atone for the sins of the world is undoing death, and things are going from right. So we had or, we had chaos, and then order in creation, and then semi chaos uh, from Adam and Eve. And the semi-chaos is coming back into order in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so the things that he is doing are, they're not arbitrary, right? I love this argument from Augustine. I'm trying to remember where that was, but, um, well, it's, I mean, it's either in his confessions or um, the city of God, but the, because uh, that's all I know, really, a handful of sermons. But uh, this argument that the miracles are, um, they're supernatural, but they're within the order of creation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he isn't doing like, you know, weird things like, um, you know, turning people into animals or, you know, giving people wings so that they can fly or laser beam eyes or, right. That's what Harry Potter apparently yeah. does. I haven't read Harry Potter, but that, that, that stuff, what Jesus is doing is actually orderly. Yeah. So it's death he's, that's disorderly. He's restorative to cr- creation. Rest- yeah. Yeah. And so the the salvific act itself and the forgiveness of sins is a restorative act, right? He's restoring the image of God in us. His righteousness is bestowed anew, restored in us so that we are reconciled. I mean, all that RE stuff, right? Reconciled to him, the redemption. I mean, all of that has to do is, is related. And the miracles are keeping with that. It's not like he's, oh, I got to show them I'm God, you know? It's like he's looking at his watch. Oops, time for a miracle so they don't forget I have power. Um, That's not the character of his miracles. He's not trying. I don't think there's any conscious effort on Jesus' part to fulfill the prophecies either. I I don't think he's walking around with a checklist, you know, make sure I do this on this day so that, you know, Psalm 118 is fulfilled and the, the children cry out. It's it just happens naturally because this is his actual character again. So instead, you would want to highlight in the miracles the character of God in his son. Yeah, and, his consistent, yeah. Okay. And that would lend itself and I would to say, then allegorizing the, or uh, applying the, the specific events from then to in an allegorical way to what he does for us now. Exactly. Okay. Right. And and even every detail matters. So then you get, you know, he sees he sees the woman, right? I mean, you know, just all these little details that are that are actually significant. Yeah. Because you know, they were given to us by the Holy Spirit. 
and there's not accidental stuff in here. And all of it is revelatory in some sense. So, yeah, I think the lesser to greater, that what we really do need to confess is that the physical resurrection of this, of this daughter is less than the forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. I mean, the greater, the greater resurrection is the, is the bestowal, again, of his image, of his righteousness, and so forth. No, I think that's, that's, hard, to, that's yeah. hard to do. Um, and it's even <laughs> right. more difficult to believe. <laughs> right. But it's true, and, it's and true. we do need to confess it. And that's the way, you know, that's why, I mean, we've talked about this, but that's why these texts were actually are, still remain so popular for funerals. Right. I mean, we're kind. What, what what are you doing if you use this at, or use the you know if you use Lazarus or whatever it is at the funeral? You're really kind. You're really saying, well, yeah, Lazarus got raised from the dead, but that wasn't the real resurrection. The real resurrection is the one on the last day, mm-hmm. you know. And and that's what you know our loved one has been promised, and that's what we're waiting for. And I mean, sure, we miss mm-hmm. her. We'd like her. To, we'd like to spend more time with her on Earth, but. It's going to pale in comparison to the eternity that we have with her in heaven. And, you know, we're not going to, she's not going to miss anything and we're not going to miss anything. This is where we're headed. This, yeah, it's a bold, it's a bold move. So do you, do you say, relating it to baptism, perhaps you have already died and been raised and you are daily dying and rising again living in your baptism, confessing your sins uh, so that a new man may emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. That, 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 um, f- that first death in baptism uh, and the daily dying is nothing compared, like, doesn't compare at all to, to this small death. Right. And, and also, what, to, to what have you died? I mean, what are you, what are you missing out on? Mm. <laughs> right? I mean, because we, we come to physical death, the separation of body and soul, right, with this idea that, well, but, you know, this is, it's, it's like we're dying to this life. We're dying to this world. We're dying to this age because we don't belong here. We're meant for something greater. And that's, this is the passage into it. So I do think it's useful, the three types of death. This is a you know, good sermon fodder, right, from our dogmatic tradition to talk about, you know, as you were just there with spiritual death. Uh, the, um, I mean, that's what we've been resurrected from in baptism. We were spiritually dead, but we've been made alive in Christ. We've gone from unbelief to faith. Uh, so we will never suffer spiritual death again, right? I mean, God willing, uh, as he preserves us through his word and sacrament. And then, of course, eternal death. So we did have spiritual death. We did have unbelief at some point before we heard the word of God in our mother's wombs or before we were baptized or whenever. Uh, eternal death, right, we'll, we'll never taste because that's been suffered for us by Christ himself. Um, and then physical death we will maybe face, and that's the separation of body and soul. And all all Christians suffer that except for those who happen to be alive on the last day. And then, you know, the few exceptions in the Bible and maybe Mary. No, I don't, I don't think Mary, but right. We do have Elijah and uh, maybe Moses and uh, that's it. Isn't it? Now I'm now all of a sudden I was thinking there was another one. Enoch. 
Enoch, Enoch, right. There we go. So th- there are a few that got out of it without being alive on the last day. But so, so those three types of death and to distinguish between them, what they are in a dogmatic way. Uh, and then to think about what did G- what deaths did Jesus suffered, right? He never suffered the spiritual death that we had unbelief. He was a believer from the instant, right. Of his conception mm. and was never apart from faith. Uh, he did suffer physical death, obviously, the separation of body and soul on Good Friday. He did suffer also eternal death. So we, we suffer two kinds of death, and one of them overlaps with Jesus. Uh, but he, and right, so it's kind of interesting how that works. And uh, so there's, a, I think you can, so that's this very is useful. the great exchange. Yeah, the great exchange. He suffers eternal death so that we never suffer eternal death. He's not capable of suffering spiritual death because he can't be an unbeliever, mm-hmm. but he does endure physical death. This is really good at funerals, I think, because he is right. He's paved the way through that. He's suffered everything that we suffer right down to the indignity of death. This death with dignity is a bunch of BS, right? There is no, I've been around this too much at this point. People don't die with dignity. It's, it's, it's not in my experience. I mean, they, they might be very dignified, honorable, good people who die making a good confession. God be praised for that. But the act of death itself is horrible, and it's resisted by everyone I've experienced to the very last breath. It's a struggle against it that mm-hmm. is lost um, at the, you know, on the mortal plane. And it's not, it's not peaceful. It's not nice. It's horrible. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, we just are spared seeing it because it happens while they're asleep. And, and so we don't, you know, witness it or we're not there. But I think, uh, you know, the funeral industry and um, modern paganism has, has, you know, has tried to soften the reality that death is the enemy. You know, the, here Jesus speaks of de- uh, the death is sleep. And that's, and I got some other passages for that, but the, um, and that's beautiful. But the point there is not that, you know, it's no big deal. <laughs> it's that the point is that we will be awakened from it, right? It's to call death asleep is a euphemism to confess the resurrection, mm-hmm. which is biblical and appropriate and orthodox. It's not to deny that death is an enemy, right? The enemy. Right. And we misunderstand that with, uh, particularly when we look in Peeper with those sweet names of death, the Mortis Dulcia Nomina, uh, he lists in a footnote on page 511, foot, footnote 14, all of the names of death in the scriptures that are euphemistic. Uh, for example, you know, departure and peace, being gathered to one's own people, departure and being with Christ, a turning away from the evil to come sleep, rest, passing from death unto life, deliverance from all evil, and gain. And this is not what we see, but this is actually, is it? should we say this is what is actually happening for those who die under the sign of faith, that, that temporal death, the, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, has lost its sting. It, it because of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, I'd say it's the this is the sort of theology of the cross that we're going to insist upon these things that we believe in 
that we that we cannot see with our eyes or experience, but which faith clings to, based on the promises in God's word. There, there is a. I, is, I don't, I don't a, even like is the word this kind infamous. of mocking of the de- the devil here. Yeah, where, where we're saying, uh, oh, you know, grave, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your victory? Uh, this is but a sleep. Uh, I'm right. gathered to my fathers. Um, this is gain for me. And instead of looking at it as a wonderful thing, we're 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 confessing this in the face of the difficulty and the harshness of it to say, you don't have the last word, devil. Right. We we wouldn't be saying this if it was apparent to the eyes or if we weren't experiencing sort of the opposite of this. In fact, I don't want to, I don't even like, I, I would rather not call this a euphemism. Mm-hmm. I mean, a euphemism means that we're, we're hiding the reality through nice words, whereas this is actually a confession of the truth that can't be seen on this side of glory. So I love this at the committal when we stand, you know, in the cemetery with the hole in the ground and the dead body sealed up in the coffin. And we say, oh, grave, where is thy victory? And I always say, like, the the whole world, you know, is walking by and going right there. There's its victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Right there. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's what it's right there. And we're just saying, no, what, what what you are seeing and what you are experiencing and what you are feeling is, is not true. What's, what's true is that Jesus lives, and we're going to confess this sort of against ourselves, against our sight. We're mm-hmm. going to cling to the word with everything that we have. We're not, you know, we're not denying the pain of this moment, uh, but we're denying that the pain of this moment wins or that the pain of this moment is eternal. This is temporary. This is yeah. a temporary setback. This is not, it looks like a victory, but it's not a real victory because it's already been won. I mean, Jesus has already over, he came out of the grave. And when he came out of the grave, he opened all the graves of believers. And we just haven't seen it yet. And that's what with our eyeballs, but we see it by faith and we trust in it. So this is what's true and this is what's real. And we're going to cling to this with everything we've got. Yeah. So that's Jesus saying, go away for the girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he was, he was right and they were wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the three types of death, I mean, that that would be a doctrine to go through. Yeah. Um, And I mean, do you just spend this time going through the article on eschatology? And I mean, you certainly could do that. And, um, you know, this is definitely, that's definitely appropriate to teach about, teach about the the three types of death, to teach about the resurrection of the body on the last day, to teach about the new earth, um, you know, to, because there's some merit in that too. Um, you know, the biblical, one of the ways the Bible speaks, mostly, you know, heaven is described in metaphors or the afterlife, right? The eternal life is metaphoric because we just can't wrap our minds around it. But, you know, one of the important things is we do believe in a new creation and we do believe, though we, it's hard to imagine, you're right, and we do believe in glorified bodies that will be recognizable and so forth. So all of that's appropriate and useful again, catechesis. I think also in that vein, it's it's always very helpful to remind people that in heaven we will not be faceless, you know, personality uh, lacking personalities or history. Um, I'm really convinced that in heaven we will remember our sins. 
that's just that we will remember them without shame. So I think we're going to know our lives because our works are going to follow us. I mean, those are the works from this life. How do they follow us if we can't remember them? And our, our works have their merit in that God gave them to us and blessed us through them and blessed our neighbors through them, right, in the midst of this sinful world. I just, I want to talk to David about what went on there. And if he doesn't remember what he did with Bathsheba, it, it's going to be a difficult conversation. And I think that, uh, I think he will remember. And I think he'll be rejoicing in the mercy that he received. And there'll be no judgment, you know, on my part, talking to him. And he won't be ashamed because we'll both be just marveling at God's goodness that, mm. you know, God worked through this despite how David was so, so stupid and so wicked and, and, and that God would be merciful to such a person. And I don't think David's going to be unique in that story. I think we're, you know, it's going to all come to, to bear. But, but in any case, um, you know, this is, we're not being, or we don't turn into angels, but we also don't turn into, you know, I don't know, boring ghosts with flowing white robes that just sing the same thing all day. Uh, you know, this is going to be new heavens and a new earth with bodies. I, I think we're still going to be, we're going to be physical creatures like we are now, but different. And I think also, you know, another thing is I think we're still going to be bound by time, uh, that time will progress. I don't think we, we become timeless. It might, might seem like it because there's no end, but I don't think there's like any going back in time. Mm. I know that's a weird thing to think about, but <laughs> anyway, the whole idea of what does it mean to be a creature and then to be raised from the dead and glorified, th there's a lot to, to think about and talk. And there are, we can't say everything we, we, we'd like to about it because we don't know, but we can recognize that some common ideas about it are false, like we become angels or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know about the whole being able to remember your sins. It's, I mean, how are, well, maybe you're, I don't know, obviously. I, I don't have a direct Bible passage, but it, it just seems to me that if our works follow us, then, I mean, how are we going to remember works apart from the context of them? I don't know. I mean, some of the, some of the works are resisting sin. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, here's something. I have, a, I have a list of Bible passages. I won't read them all. I guess the question is that is raised for me is, they follow us, but does that does that mean we remember them? I, yeah, I, we're going to be surprised. I don't. I don't know. I, mean, I have well, no idea. Well, I do, and I told you so. There. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it either. Well, I mean, it's 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 so beyond our imagination. Anything we say is very speculative, and. Uh, you know, it's it's a veil we can't see past. So I, I'm, I'm being, I'm not really that dogmatic about it. I I do think that's how it's going to be, but I'm aware that I don't really know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure what I'm imagining, even though I, I am trying to base this on scripture, is going to be it's not it's going to be different than I imagine it. Sure, because right. So I mean that's, but you know, it's still I think despite that, I think it's actually. Um, edifying to actually think about it 
to mm-hmm. try to discern, to, to, to seek to peer into these things, even as our forefathers sought to peer into the mysteries of the incarnation mm-hmm. and, and to, you know, not be dogmatic, you know, to, cause we don't want to set up as the doctrine, as doctrine, you know, the ideas of men, but at the same time to, to actually contemplate these things mm-hmm. in scripture and, and to consider, because it does have a bearing on what does it mean to be a human? And what does, you know, what do my vocations matter? You know, all that. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. So you were going to go through the passages of the resurrections. Well, yeah, let's do that. I also had a list of passages where death is na- called sleep in the Bible. So it, it's not super common, but I found at least six of them. Or, okay. or, or the resurrection is described as awakening. So just so you know, it's Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, this one, Matthew 9. Then we have John 5, uh, John 11 to Lazarus, right? Remember, our friend Lazarus sleeps. Mm-hmm. And then 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, so you could look that up if, if somebody's you, – you could run through those. You know, that could be a kind of sermon outline or evidence. But then another kind of fun thing is the – the named individual resurrections in the Bible. And I ran across this several years ago uh, when I was preaching on the, uh, the resurrection in Nain, because the resurrection of Jesus is actually the seventh chronologically. So you have, you have the widow's son in Zarephath by Elijah. Then you have the Shunammite son by Elisha. Then you have the man who was thrown into Elisha's grave, who maybe was a Moabite, whatever Moab E, whatever Moab people are called. And <laughs> Moabite. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jairus's daughter, this one in Mark. Uh, and then you have the young man at Nain, that's five. Lazarus is the penultimate, number six. And then Jesus is seven. And then you have two in Acts, Tabitha by Peter and Eutychus, Eutych- whatever you say that, by Paul. Eutychus. So Eutychus, really I'm really botching everything today with that, aren't I? Anyway, the it, it's sort of interesting. Now, there you could, you know, you, you can see, like in the Revelation of St. John, of course, all kinds of resurrections. And we can see typological resurrections like Jonah and Daniel coming out of the lion's den and Joseph coming out of the pit. And I mean, there's there's others, of course. I'm not denying that. But where somebody is, you know, body and soul have been separated and then brought back together, you get one by Elijah, one by Elisha, and then sort of another one by Elisha. And then Jesus does three of them. And then, and then you have raises himself. And then Peter and John each do one. So that's kind of interesting. I think that it's the seventh chronologically is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's not named. They're not numbered in the Bible, you know, um, but it doesn't seem accidental to me. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> so what would you like, what would you do with that? Well, I don't know. I probably, what I've done in the past is I've just named them. I've just, I've just pointed it out that, uh, you know, that, uh, this idea of resurrecting is not a new idea. Shouldn't have surprised the Sadducees, you know, and, you know, here they are, and Christ is, they're all leading, of course, to the resurrection of Christ, and then his resurrection, 
you know, defines and enables all the future resurrections uh, on the last day. So I've not done a lot with it, but I just, just name other than just naming it as kind of illustrative, because I think we forget about all those resurrections, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that they're, you know, that when, when, when they're listed like that, I think, um, you know, pulled out of context, but, you know, listed like that chronologically, I think it gives them a kind of weight that is helpful to see how this was going on from the beginning. And if you add the typological resurrections, you know, you really get a lot then. That yeah, this is, Joseph again, there's and, a, well, right, I mean, this is a pattern, you know. This is the God who pulls out of death, the God who's always been the God of the living, you know. And so, mm. so I don't know what you do with it. Not much, but yeah. it's 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 still it's sort of good, you know, uh, biblical literacy stuff. You know, that's that's a goal also of our catechesis, um, biblical literacy, and that people would, you know, learn to see the Bible as a unified narrative <laughs> and a theological narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that sort of thing can sort of help uh, either spark and remind them of things that they knew but hadn't maybe put together or maybe spark them to go and read these things or to pay closer attention yeah it is uh it is remarkable when you i mean just reading through exodus and deuteronomy and you know the how stiff-necked the people were and how much they took for granted what god was doing for them and how he was providing for them and then you take a look at, you know, we live in a time where you have more access to the Word of God than at any other time before in right. multiple different ways, whether it's being able to read it on your phone as you go or listen to it on your phone or, you know, pop a CD in the car or just read a book and all the different translations. And and yet we live at a time that is of the highest biblical illiteracy, right? even among Christians. Oh, yeah. So, and the tools. Yeah, yeah. Right? I, mean, I mean, the, the concordances and the dictionaries and the atlas, I mean, we have right at our fingertips. <laughs> yeah. And it just gathers dust. Yeah. Um, and you, you think, like, we look back almost with scorn at those people, and we don't even see ourselves in it. Yeah. Like, how much how much more we've been given and how much more we've left on the table. Well, I mean, some of it, I think there's a diabolical reality to digital things. And it's, it's when, what happens sometimes is because we've put the Bible into a digital format so we can read it on our phone and we can search it easily and all these sorts of things that we could do with it. What happens is we've outsourced that to, to something instead of using our own brains to do it. And, you know, this has happened like with, with GPSs, right? I don't need a map. I got a GPS. But then what happens is I'm a slave to the GPS and I don't actually develop the ability to navigate and these kind of spatial relationships and stuff. So there's a, we, we have more, it looks like we have more, but we actually have less. I mean, look at Gerhardt's knowledge of scripture or the fathers, you know, they don't have these tools. They don't even have, I mean, I don't mean just even, they don't have the digital tools. They they don't have the books we have, Um, you know, and it's, it's a, but they, it was precious to them and it was worth the effort and they didn't outsource it. 
they did their own work. Right. And I, you know, the digital stuff and I pastors always resist me when I talk about this, but I'm, I'm doing everything by hand now. It's crazy to me, but I mean, I got a new King James Bible on my desk and a pad of paper and the Greek new Testament. And that's, that's how I prepare for these things. That's how I, it's, um, I really think that uh, we got to get back to that. For years, I, I could go. We, I could go the whole week and never open a physical Bible because I used Logos all the time. I did that for decades, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was. I, you know, I still have Logos on my computer. I and uh, you know, I it's I don't I haven't uh, I don't, I'm not. It has its place. It's really great for like searching the Book of Concord um, and for other stuff. But I think. I think there's a lot to be said for reading out of a book and not outsourcing this. This mm-hmm. is too intimate of a of a gift where God actually speaks to us. And if you'd read it off a computer screen, one of the problems is your computer screen is an entertainment device. And it's so it's used for other things. Mm. You know, even like, you know, your email and all that. I mean, oh, oh that's not it is entertainment, right? Because there's like dopamine stuff that comes off it and I know. I don't want to get it's too late, but <laughs> it's annoying well, I, and it's it's tr- it's tough. It, you have to give something up. It, yeah. There is a cost to giving up these conveniences. And I get that, but there is there really is a reward in it. So mm-hmm. for the millionth time, I just want to encourage everybody to try it. Mhm. So what do you do uh when you come across a voc- vocab word that you don't know? I just skip it. Um, okay. I mean, eventually, uh, well, when I'm, I mean, it depends. I have different, when I'm starting, I just skip it. But then eventually, like not the first session that I'm working on stuff, I'll, I'll pick up, uh, you know, Wallace's Greek grammar or the lexicon. Mm-hmm. I use a, I do, I use a Greek New Testament that has a lexicon at the bottom of the page. I uh, should have okay. said that. Is that so, the reader's you know, one? Yeah. It's one of the readers ones and it's a weird one, but I like it the best of, I got a couple of them. This is the, um, this is from Crossway and it's the Greek text produced at Tyndale. And it has, it's really, it's a much bigger book than the other readers editions because the print's nicer and it's bigger. The pages are a little thicker and it has more information at the bottom of the page. It, it has, it has the a definition if the words not used more than 50 times or something but okay. then it also has various um, parsing also. Okay. Um, not for everything, but it's got quite a bit more than some of the other readers' editions. It's really, mm-hmm. really nice. Um, the only weird thing, and I can't figure out why, and I've looked at it's a really nice book, and it wasn't that expensive, but um, the order of the epistles is unusual, and I, have, I don't know how, what, it, what it follows or why. Um, and I've... And I've I've looked and tried to figure it out. If anybody knows, I'd love to know what scheme they're following. I've, I've seen some other criticisms online of it, of why in the world did they just follow the normal canonical order? But so far I've, yeah. I've been able to find every, I've been able to find every, every book of the new Testament in there eventually, but uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it takes a few minutes. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and acts are in the regular order. So, and revelations at the end. So it's just the rest you got to figure out. Anyway, yeah, that, that's that 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 prevents me from needing, you know, other stuff. What Greek text does it follow? The Byzantine or 
Well, that's it's its own thing. See, I know this is the problem with all this stuff. It's this, it's this Tyndale text. Um, oh, okay. I don't know. It explains the text in here, in the preface and in the introduction. It does not explain the the book order. That's a huge annoyance to me if that's not really apparent. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if back to follow uh, the. Yeah, okay, back to it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Matthew nine. Um, anything else with the translation? Oh, I did notice some stuff, but now I forgot what it was. Well, I mean, we, 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 we talked about that saving thing. She, she talks in terms of saving, um, the, the woman with the blood. Uh, we talked about sleeping, the ridiculing. Yeah. That's of course also obviously kind of, uh, foreshadowing the, uh, ridicule that he suffers on the cross. You could do something with this if you wanted to get allegorical. Um, you could you could do something with the garment that, you know, she reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. And of course, you know, we have this garment that is gambled over at the, uh, at the cross. Uh, you have the wedding garment. You know, you have all these garments, the coat of many colors, you know, of Joseph. The garment's a big deal there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pulse, you know, Jeff Pulse at the Fort Wayne Seminary has written quite a bit about that. And I think there's a lot of merit in it to sort of see how this idea of, you know, what what does a garment do, right? You know, it covers us, protects us, you know, it can also signify office. So, you know, these sorts of things, there's something to that. And I think, you know, that she wants to touch his garment and he doesn't ridicule her, her for that. Um, in fact, he says that she has faith, right? Be courageous daughter, he calls her daughter. That's another mm-hmm. connection between the, the two women. Um, and then, you know, your faith has saved you. So her desire to touch the garment is not superstition. She's not just grasping at straws, you know, looking for, for 12 years, the doctors, Luke tells us, I think it's Luke, one of them that, you know, no doctor has been able to help her for 12 years. And so, you know, is she just grasping at straws? She'll try anything? Yeah. Uh, no, it says she has faith. Um, and she and it seems that touching the hem of the garment is an act of humility. Like she doesn't want to bother him. So you think we should say that even when sh- the words are sozo is in her mouth, it should be, I will be saved. I think so. And she means he- something more than just being healed. Yeah. But she does mean, I think she does mean he be healed, but she wants to be cleansed. She's ritually impure. She can't go to the temple. She can't have children. She's got, you know, uh, big issues. Um, and, you know, and, and, and really, uh, really innocent. I mean, right. I mean, morally, she's not really culpable for this. This just happened to her and, and she's suffering this and it's horrible. And, People think she's dirty and yucky because of this. I mean, she's got all these kinds of issues and she wants to be saved, not just from the flow of blood, but she wants to be saved from the accusations of the law and from the, um, you know, the ceremonial law as well. That That's what she wants to be saved from, all of this. The ceremonial so, law has this kind of relentless, overbearing burden, right? So are... So- could we approach this then, if we're preaching on this text, taking a look at how we, we've already talked about how what we receive is more and greater. 
um, and that's the the greater thing to be prized, and that we should think of it in those terms. Should we also think of it in terms of look what he does for those who um, didn't deserve this necessarily? I mean, as those who are sinners, you know, we do, but he saves us from stuff that we've actually committed or failed to do. And he's restoring them really for no fault of their own. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that a sense in which you would take like, or, or do you, do you use this as an opportunity to say, look, he cleanses you, not just from the stuff that you've done, but the stuff done to you. Yeah. That's what I was more thinking of the, the stuff that's done to you, right? We've been actually dirtied by life in this world. We've been corrupted by it. We've been victims of violent crimes and of other things. And, you know, we've been, you know, somebody's dragged us into their drama and just life, right? It's, mm-hmm. I, I, that's what's beautiful in a horrible way about, about the relentless character of the ceremonial law. I think, you know, modern readers hear this like, you know, okay, a grasshopper lands on your plate. Now it's unclean, you know, and how in the world are you going to stop a grasshopper? So it's like we we hear this and it sounds frustrating, I think, because because it's not fair, um, mm-hmm. because it's not really things we're in control of. But that I think that's really part of it. That's the point of it is that this is this is the situation we're in. That it's hopeless. That yeah. there's no getting out of it. Right. This is an impossible standard for fallen men to keep or to keep yourself clean. But that's why the temple exists. Right. I mean, the, the point is that, you know, that the whole temple and tabernacle is to establish the means why, by which we can be cleansed so that we can stand in the presence of God and praise him. And that's what Jesus is. He's the temple. And he, he does all of this. And he also lifts the burden of that ceremonial law and, in a sense, replaces the things of the, of the ceremonial law with, with actual spiritual laws guiding worship. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the great thing to the Samaritan woman on, in the, at the well, right? The, uh, he, now we worship him in spirit and in truth, not in ceremony. I mean, there's ceremony involved, but it's different. So the Passover was a ceremony. The Holy Communion is not a ceremony. Mm-hmm. We, in, in the Holy Communion, we actually receive his body and blood, and that's true worship, to receive that and the forgiveness of sins. That's worshiping in spirit and truth, even though there's a physicality to it. It's mm-hmm. not a ceremony. There are ceremonies attendant to it, but the sacrament of the altar is not a ceremony. The Passover sacrifice was. And, you know, circumcision compared to baptism, right? The temple uh, temple worship even can compared to Christian worship. Uh, all of that, right? in being embodied and fulfilled by Christ and then given this newer thing. So I don't know how that got started, but. Well, we were talking about how, yeah, how we are cleansed not only from, from the things that we do, but from things that are done to us. Yeah. It it seems also that there can be a, a, in a manner of speaking, a way of looking at this that, you know, we, often chafe under these things. Do you think they chafed under it or do you think they loved it? Oh, I think they chafed. Okay. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, right. Jesus, uh, you know, uses that against them, right. That you, how's that go? Right. You're, you're trying to make other people do these things. You yourself don't do them. Yeah. What, what, what is that? I you mean, know what this, I, I but this woman, it doesn't seem like she's chafing under it. This is oh, what she desires. 
oh, what she, des- she desires to be free, saved from it. So that's why she uses the word saved and said, she doesn't just say cleansed. Mm. So she doesn't just want to be cleansed. Then she might just get dirty again. She wants to be delivered. Yeah, but then it's being delivered from God's own word. Well, delivered to the, I mean... I mean, his commandments aren't burdensome. We view, we, we view them that way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. under them. But really, isn't the goal that we would love God's standard? Well, I, we, the goal is that we would love his spiritual laws. I don't think the goal is that we love his ceremonial law. I mean, we love it in so far as that it reveals his character, right? Again, you know, the ceremonial law is not arbitrary. I mean, it does show us who God is, and it does show us what we need. But the... The, the real love is of God himself, not of, not of the ceremonial law. Uh, and so we love his will insofar as his law is his will, yes. But the details about the Sabbath, you know, and the details about menstrual cycles and dietary, uh, you know, limitations and, and those sorts of things, we can love the system as a whole, but the actual details aren't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say those are to be objects of love. Because we were worship in spirit and truth. I mean, they did too, but we yeah, didn't. No, no, and I'm just saying, for them, they were to love that. The ceremonial mm. laws have passed away. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they, they love it insofar as it's the means by which they, are, they can be cleansed and restored to God's fellowship. But I, but I think, you know, as soon as you say, uh, you don't have to circumcise the kids, they're like, yeah, good, great, thank you. That was horrible. We didn't like doing that. Um, we, I mean, we, we liked what God gave us through that, but, you know, cutting off the end, this was a pretty unpleasant activity, right? You don't say that about baptism. I mean, b- baptism is not an unpleasant activity. No. So I, I, I don't think they really love the—I mean, you're right, because the specificity of how God comes to them and what God does is in, the, is in these things— but I don't think that that's what they love. I don't think they love cutting off foreskins. I think they love being part of the family, right? Sure. Yes. Okay. I but, bet we're going to get in. Tr- I'm going to get in trouble over this. I'm thinking. Okay. But, so we'll see. How are? That's okay. I don't. I've been in trouble before, and uh, if I'm wrong on this, I'm willing. I, it'd be good for me to be corrected. But I, we'll see what our what our listeners say yeah. about that. Yeah, I think it's probably a fine distinction that that you're talking about that I'm just not separating. Well, or it's a confusion on my part or mine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair Uh, enough. Okay. So, um, the, uh, my point in that was only that she desires to have the, to be clean. She desires, uh, to To be be brought back in to what, God's standards display. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so should we. And so should we. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so doctrines, did you cover all the doctrines that you wanted to? You talked about the three yeah, types I, I of Yeah, I think dad. so. Is there any training in righteousness here or correction? Mm. Uh, don't ridicule Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't I'm sure there is. Laugh but... with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose um, there there's always sort of room to to not fear death more than we fear God, 
and to trust in his promises. I think we are more afraid of physical death than we're willing to admit. We'd like to not be afraid of it. But again, as I was saying, from my own experience being around the Christians in their death throes, it's a terrifying thing for those people. Um, yeah. Not that God doesn't preserve them through it. He does. I mean, it's but it's death is a cross. It's the enemy. At the same time, I mean, the the instinct to not want to be afraid of it and say we're not afraid of it does come from a reality that we, in some sense, shouldn't be, right? So, so there could be a training in righteousness about, you know, like, I mean, we could, I, I know it feels like everything comes back to, you know, COVID, but, you know, are we, are we so intent on bodily health that we'll give other things up for it? Then that's an idol. Mm, sure. Is there a sense where, you know, I, I talk to my kids, you know, when we go hunting or even when we go swimming, like, um, there's, you know, there's a particular kind of fear that you should have around firearms, a recognition that they're dangerous if poorly used or around water, right? You should have a recognition that this can harm you, but you shouldn't let it be an overpowering fear. Is, is there a sense in which this is how we should view death? We see it as an enemy, but it is a conquered enemy, but it is still an enemy and there's a certain level of recognition. I don't know if you'd call it fear. I don't know if you'd call it respect, you know, respecting water for what it, the harm that it can do or respecting a firearm for the harm that it can do, that there's a certain respect for what this can do and how it can lead us astray. An acknowledgement, maybe that is yeah. the word, an acknowledgement of the, the, harm that it can cause, that we should be mindful of that uh, and not fear it, but still acknowledge the harm. Yeah. No, I think that's good. That's a good distinction. Right. I mean, it, we always, I always, I always hated the NRA, NRA campaign that guns don't kill people. People do. Um, because, because nobody accidentally killed somebody with, you know, a butter knife. <laughs> but and so, I mean, the thing is that I hated that campaign because I wanted my children to respect firearms and to be aware that they're designed to kill and mm-hmm. they don't care who they kill. And so they have to be treated, right? And, and and if a kid just thinks, well, the firearm's no danger, it's only people that are dangerous, right? That's that's a ridiculous, to me, way to treat firearms. They, they have to be recognized that their purpose is to kill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's animals or people or, you know, it's that's what it's for. Yeah. And so if it's not used appropriately, it's going to be, you know, if it's inordinate again, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, that there's lots of things that applies to, you know, cars are also dangerous. You know, they have to be used the right way and seriously. I, li- I like your water thing. And I think there's probably is a, a real application of that, of maybe even of, right, that, that, uh, we're not terrified of death. We know that death is a passage for those who have faith, right? Who depart in the sign of faith. At the same time, um, we recognize that death is an enemy and that death doesn't care in a sense if we have faith or not. It's kind of the same reaction with regard to, to the devil. We can, we can, we can fall off the horse on two sides where we, we ascribe him no power at all, or we ascribe him too much. 
and make him equal to God. And finding kind of that healthy disrespect and healthy respect for that enemy is, is necessary. And for our own weaknesses. I mean, that's, that's, that goes along with it, that, you know, we have our own weaknesses that, that can lead us astray. Well, I mean, right. We've been, we've been sort of talking about um, resisting death and the fear of death, but you know, you do have the whole abuse of, you know, under the guise of so-called euthanasia, right? A kind of embracing of death that's inappropriate too, right? Deciding that God, the giver of life, made a mistake and the life he gave isn't worth your gratitude Mm -hmm. or your um, cooperation. I mean, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. The devil, the devil uh, analogy, I think is apt. Yeah. Well, and the fact that he raises her indicates that death is the enemy. Yeah. He's not like, oh, it's fine. She's in heaven. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, uh, when, I mean, could have maybe, but uh, that isn't what he does. <laughs> that's not what he does. <laughs> he, he's act, he acts in compassion, right? And uh, though I think we rightly uh, take his words about her sleeping and apply them to our loved ones, because again, what happened to her wasn't unnatural. Mm-hmm. Right, the resurrection of the body is the natural outcome and reality of being in the image of God. Yeah, we can't die. He's the living God. We have mm-hmm. His image. How could we be dead? So yeah. we're going to live. And so water uh, wants to become just, wine. Cows want to be steak, and bodies <laughs> that's right. that, that have the Holy Spirit want to to be alive. Absolutely, and they yeah. will be. Right, and they I will mean, be. She just gets it early. Mm-hmm. You know, he just speeds up time, and she she gets it early. So she doesn't die again. Well, I think she probably does. I, I have a, I have a well, friend. That, <laughs> I have a friend that thinks maybe she didn't, um, and uh, you know that that all these people that are raised, are, and I mean that they you know none of their deaths are reported, but maybe they were all assumed into heaven. Lazarus, Jairus's daughter, you know, um, uh, the Tabitha, all of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they maybe they never did. Maybe the resurrection was, in fact, you know, I don't know. That seems. I mean, I, it, it just doesn't seem to accord with, the, uh, with how it's recorded in Scripture. So um, what, what, what do we think happened to all of the graves that opened after our Lord's crucifixion? Right. So what they, happened to all I those people? You think, okay, so, yeah. so maybe when Jesus is uh, ascended into heaven, maybe that's when they all go up with him. Or maybe even sooner. That's but on the day of his resurrection. Whereas, yeah, seems like seems like they go up pretty quick. I think they're. See, I think they're actually confused. Um, I think that the. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I know it sounds funny, but I think that I think nature gets confused at the crucifixion. They think it's the end. Oh. So that's why it goes dark and all this stuff. That's why they come out. They're like, oh, the, hey, look, you know, it's like the alarm went off early. They're like, oh. <laughs> It's all over, right? It's finished. Time to get up. You forgot oh, well, to wait set the clock back. That's right. That's right. There you go. That's what it is. It's the original daylight saving time mistake. <laughs> and, but it, yeah, it's it's like there. It, it seems like it's done because he said it's finished, and and in some sense it is. But then there's this delay that mm-hmm. was sort of unforeseen, yeah. and um, so yeah, I think they assume. But see, this girl, none of them. I mean, first of all, we nothing's really told us except that they get up and they wander around Jerusalem. But 
we don't have any, you know, recordings of them like being given back to their families. Whereas the, the, the boy in name was given to his mother here, this daughter, though it doesn't say it right. He's given to his, her father, um, you know, the Shunammite son and the, the other son, right. They're given, they're in the context of their families. They're raised for their families. The compassion is actually to those who are grieving, not really to the deceased. Yeah. And that seems to me that the resurrection at the crucifixion, and of course the resurrection on the last day, th- those are a different character. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the guy with Elijah's body, by the way, is not a Moabite. Maybe he's a, but why are they burying him? Cause it'd be nice if he was a believer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So uh, what are you going to preach on? I think I'm going to do the garment thing. You're going to do the what? The garment? What's that? Yeah, I think I'm going to I think I want to make this connection between you know, um the garment that that she touches, the garment that is, you know, auctioned off by gambling as part of his humiliation and um crucifixion and then um you know, uh how we're you know, we put on the new we put on Christ and he covers us. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I won't be able to pull it off, but that's what I'm thinking of right now. Yeah. I think it could be Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I think uh, I think if I had to do it right now, <clears throat> I would move in the direction of, you know, wanting to teach on what you were talking about in terms of Jesus' miracles aren't contrary to nature and that's, mm. that he's restoring nature. And um, and then discuss the, the the three types of death and, you know, w- what the the unnaturalness of that and how that's overcome. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm chewing on right now, but it's a ways away. Right. Well, and I mean, that would be the, that's in some ways the easy thing. Um, and I'm not against that. Um, so yeah, but you know, we, not as many people go to funerals as that's true. To. That's true. Well, I wasn't meaning it wasn't useful. I'm just saying it, you know, it's, yeah. But it is the sort of thing they need to hear. Yeah. And it could develop into, um, you know, not just the undoing of death, but also the, the whole discussion about, you know, being restored to the community, being cleansed mm. and getting more. I kind of like the idea of discussing like getting more and, you know, viewing that in light of the, the the three types of death, as well as then kind of looking at, you know, so how should we view this? Where do we go wrong when we think of death, particularly yeah. in our age, you know? Right, right. But we'll see. All right. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> <laughs>